Everybody just left. <laughs> They've heard me preach one too many times, and they left. <laughs> so uh, I picked up one thing in your announcements this morning that um, is definitely different from Baptist. And um, uh, Larry kept referring to bringing uh, heavy appetizers. <laughs> so... In the Baptist world, we, we would just say, you know, bring your best dish for your potluck. And the vision I had of a heavy appetizer was wheeling it in with a wheelbarrow. <laughs> Man, you guys must have outstanding potlucks. <laughs> so, I hope you have a great time. So, I want to I can't. I would come, but I can't. I've got a commitment that night. But anyway, um, I want to finish up the book of 1 Timothy. And I'm going to ask you this question. What, what is godliness? What is godliness? Um, while we were singing Emmanuel, I was thinking of, a, I don't know exactly what Gloria in excelsis Deo means, I know it's, I think it's a Latin term, and I think it means exalted God, but um, are you godly when you, when you sing? You know, are you godly if you dress up as a monk and you live in a monastery? Um, what, is, what is it to be godly? How would you define it? I went back to Noah Webster's dictionary. You know, it's hard to find Noah Webster's dictionary. He was a Christian. And everything that he defined in his dictionary was defined according to a, a biblical context, if you would. Um, but he said this, it's the quality or practice of conforming to the laws and wishes of God, devotedness, and moral uprightness. And then he says this, he, he puts it into a sentence, I, I really like this, he says, to be wise is to live in godliness reflecting the nature of the kingdom of God in the course of everyday life. You know, I think we've completely lost that in our culture. We've lost the idea of what it means to be wise. How often do you hear anybody speak about wisdom? Biblical wisdom, wisdom for everyday life. What he's saying here, uh, Webster, is, is that when we walk in godliness, we live a wise life. I'm not going to take the time, but if you went back to Proverbs, you'd find that wisdom is the fountain of life. It's, it's where you get joy and happiness. Wisdom is to walk in agreement um, with the Scripture, with, with Christ Himself. Wisdom is right living, if you would. And to be godly is to learn to live rightly. It, it, it has the idea of piety or sanctity. A godly person is in the process of being sanctified are being made more like Jesus. Now, I, I know there's two different definitions, if you would, biblically for sanctification. And the one I want to camp out for a minute on is the fact that when you, are, when you first get saved, you're sanctified. But then there's this process of sanctification that goes on in our life. And that whole process is to make us more like Jesus. It's to make us Christ-like. A godly person is in the process of being sanctified or being more like Jesus. One of the main reasons that Jesus saves us 
is so that we can live differently from the world by living as He would live, by being like Him, by being godly. Jesus is the best example of being godly. This is simple for the believer in one sense. And we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit and allow Him to direct us and speak through us. This is our hope for life on earth, being filled with Him. The godly life is a Spirit-filled life. It's a life of submission to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of the believers. It is a simple concept in one sense, but it becomes complicated as we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, who also wants us to submit to their desires. So there's this war that goes on inside of us demanding that we submit to them. When I was, when my kids were young, we got some of these James Dobson films that were uh, McGee and Me. I don't know if you remember those. But he always had a cartoon. McGee was an eight-year-old kid or 10-year-old kid. He always had the devil on one's shoulder and the godly, you know, angel on the other shoulder. That's almost what's going on with us. We hear things from the world and we hear things from God. And discerning that sometimes is difficult, but if we're going to live a godly life, we have to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to us. We have to walk according to the Spirit. If you're doing these, there's a good chance you're living a Holy, Holy Spirit-filled, godly, submitted life. So in this passage, Paul addresses four areas of everyday life that are practical examples and admonitions to godliness. So I want to look at 1 Timothy 6 with you this morning. I'm going to read the first two verses. I'm going to just read them as I go through. I won't spend all that time. Uh, reading the entire chapter today. So, verse 1 says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may, be, may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them. Because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, the first thing to see is, I believe Paul's addressing godliness in the workplace. As Paul brings his letter to a close to Timothy, he calls on him to instruct the Christians in Ephesus to live godly in the workplace. Um, in today's world, we don't have bond servants. They were basically slaves. But we do have bosses and employees we do spend an average of about eight hours a day a week in our workplaces one way or the other. We're sort of in a different environment even now in the workplace in that we have um, people who can work at home via the internet and all that. But we still have someone we have to answer to. We still have someone that is our boss, if you would. Even if you work for yourself, I work for myself. And I have people I have to answer to. In my case, I answer to my tenants, but I also answer to the city, and I answer to the county, and I answer to, you know, federal government here. Somebody mentioned tax day. I wanted to ruin the service, I think, earlier. No. <laughs> but we, we all answer to somebody. 
is by far and away where most people spend the most of their time. What better place to be seen as a Christian than in the workplace? What better place to be able to share your testimony via your actions as well as your, your speech? Paul instructs the employees, that is bondservants, to treat their bosses, their masters, with the utmost respect and honor. They're to be the best employees, the best servants. They're to trust and honor and obey their bosses. If you work, you will ultimately have someone above you that you answer to. How do you treat them? How do you say about, what, excuse me, what do you say about them behind their back? How do you, how do they feel about you? Do they trust you? Do they willingly turn stuff over to you because they know you'll do a good job? This is what Paul is calling on the church to do. Instruct employees to do the best employees or to be the best employees they can. He, he states this again in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a constant refrain in the New Testament of, of one kind or another. We're to be the same with our family and friends and our church as we are in the workplace. And that's what Paul's exhorting these bond servants, the slaves of that day too. We're not to despise our bosses. Sometimes that hard, that's hard. The first job I had out of a college, um, it was in the 70s, for recession. Some of you probably remember that. Couldn't get a job almost. So I finally got a job working for a wholesale plum and supply house in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. And my boss was a class act all in himself. At one point, um, I literally almost hit him. He was, he was that disgusting of a boss. And uh, we stood outside the front door one day and he, st he started in on me and my fist, I didn't even realize what I was doing, I was doing like this. My fist was swinging beside me. And I, I was so mad. And he took a couple steps back. He realized he'd gone too far. I was not a Christian. And I was not about to behave like a Christian. <laughs> I wanted to rumble, you know. So I know about bosses. Bosses can be really, really tough at times. But as a Christian, we're to be submissive within the confines of Scripture. We're to be gracious and kind. We're to speak well of them. We're to, we're to treat them well. They ought to be able to depend on us. You know, one of the amazing things that happened after Iraq fell was we found that Saddam Hussein had, had surrounded himself in his uh, leadership with Christians. Did you know that? You know why he did that? Because he could trust them. Of all things, Saddam Hussein. That's the kind of people we should be. Do you believe that God is in charge of your life? If so, then ask him what he's trying to teach you in the midst of a difficult job, a difficult boss. Is God in the workplace? Is he your Lord? Will you be willing to ultimately serve him by serving your boss? That's what Paul is calling the church to do. Note that last phrase in verse 2, and 
I went back through this this morning. He hammers this. In every translation I looked at, he hammers this. He says, teach and exhort these things. That's what we should be doing. And I'm, I, I've been a Christian 40 plus years, and believe me, I've seen plenty of Christians who do not treat their bosses well, who do not say what good things of them, <clears throat> who, who are not trusted by their bosses. This is what we're to teach. Hopefully, as you live your life, those 40 hours or so in the workplace, you are a demonstration of godliness. Then Paul instructs Timothy to teach his congregation about how to handle money in a godly way. This is where the bulk of the passage is in chapter 6. <clears throat> or <clears throat> Paul, uh, apparently, uh, the church there, all these new believers, they had, they had a struggle with money, with greed, with, with issues of finances. So Paul is very blunt. Look at verse 3. I want to read verses 3 to 5. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise, and he's referring back to being godly with your bosses, and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine <clears throat> which accords with godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which Come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Paul's very blunt about those who teach other things that do not line up with godliness or with God's word. He calls them proud and argumentative, causing strife around them. Note, all these character qualities that Paul states are the character of a person who disagrees with sound biblical doctrine. We're to be students of the word, and then we're to apply the word to our lives and live it out. That's, that's basically what godliness is. <clears throat> he ends this list with a statement that those sort of people believe that if they Fanine godliness that they will get rich. We see this around us in all sorts of ways today. Um, when I first became a Christian, there was this guy out of New York. He called, it, uh, he called himself the, the pastor of green. And he preached on how to become wealthy. I heard this last week or week before last that one of the main problems with <clears throat> pastors in Africa, in some parts of Africa, is that they've fleece their people. One guy is worth $200 million. He's a pastor. And his people are poor as church mice. Godliness is not a means to wealth, although that may be a part of it. But godliness is how we handle it, what we do with it. I believe that one of the ways that God can bless is with Wealth, but it's been my experience that those he gives wealth to are those who are conduits of blessings to others. They do not hold wealth for themselves. They are givers. They are funnels that God uses to bless. Does, it, does God allow the unbeliever wealth? Of course he does. But what he is instructing here is that we're not to seek godliness through financial gain or for financial gain. In fact, if it is our intent to gain wealth only, we're displaying a lack of godliness. Verse 6 says this, Now godliness 
with contentment is great gain. I've had to camp out on that verse in my life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Verse 7, Paul reminds us of the brevity of life Let me back up. Verse 6, Paul contrasts true godliness with consternation caused by people that that put wealth before godliness. Now, most of you have lived long enough. You've run into somebody who's pretty greedy and everything stops right there in in relationship to them because they want money. That's an unfortunate thing. People do live that way. When we trust God for our means then we trust Him for the amount He gives. When we trust Him with what He gives, then we can enjoy contentment in life inside of, our, of an inner struggle. I have struggled with the whole thing of contentment. I've struggled with being content much of my life. And so <clears throat> God in His humor and His love gave me a wife who she'd be satisfied living in a pup tent. I'm not kidding. <laughs> She doesn't care about material things hardly at all. I think God laughed in one sense when he gave me my wife, and and she's a wonderful woman, let me tell you. And all through life, God kept bringing me back to that verse. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. I may have finally learned that. I'm not sure. I'm 70. I still have a little bit of learning to do. But that's a, that's a hard one. Then in verse 7, Paul reminds us of the brevity of life and the transitoriness of life. We came in with nothing and we'll go out the same way. Um, in my pastoral ministry, I'm, I've done somewhere around two or 300 funerals. I've never been to a funeral yet where someone carried everything they had into the casket and then the grave with them. They're always dressed up nice. You know. They try to make them look as good as they can. But when you die, you die, and you don't take anything with you. And Paul just hits that. So if this is true, why do we spend so much energy trying to collect material things? So be content with the things he gives us. As he will meet our needs. He's always faithful. God can take care of you. Probably you know that already, but let me tell you, God does a good job of taking care of us. In verse 9, these two verses, verse 9 and 10, contrast this godly contentment. The desire for riches can lead to destruction of one's integrity and consequently one's life. Greed shows itself in all kinds of ways. It would be better to give all you have away than to be greedy, yet greed is magnified in our culture. I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh all the time. I liked Rush Limbaugh, I'll tell you that. But he had this saying that just sort of grated against me. He said, you know, greed is good. 
We need good greed. I can't find any place in Scripture where greed is good. I disagreed with him there. Verse 10 is often misquoted. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Is that what it says there? Can you put that one back up by chance? That is not what Paul says. The love of money is not the root of all evil. It is a root of some evil. God uses money. This church has been blessed with finances as near as I can figure. God wants to use that to reach this community for Jesus Christ. He blesses you with it so that you can use it for the kingdom. The love of money is the root of, it's not the root of all evil, it's the root of a kind of evil. It's not the key to all evil. But we've probably all seen folks who have walked away from Christ because of their pursuit of money. And unfortunately, I've seen that as a pastor over the years. Particularly if you nudge people. Now, I'm not your pastor. I have no financial interest in your church. But if you don't tithe, you're not being obedient to God, to his word, and you're skimping on your godliness. I've said that to churches all through my ministry, and I've had people walk out the back door. Don't walk out the back door of this church. God wants to teach you to trust him. That's what you do when you tithe. I believe the cure for, for greed is generosity. I love this time of year because I get to watch the old movies. You know, One I really enjoy is uh, George C. Scott playing Scrooge. I'm going to look at it if I can find it this year. I think we have it on DVD, but I'm not sure our DVD player works anymore. <laughs> but what's the deal with Scrooge? Scrooge canceled every relationship in his life for finances, for money, until he was haunted by the three ghosts. And then he began to understand, at the end of the movie, of course, he goes and basically gives away the house. Because he finally got it. The way to get through Greed is to be generous. One more thought that I have found to be true while I'm hitting on this is you cannot outgive God. Try it. I dare you. I double dog dare you. You cannot outgive Him. Set your sights on trying to outgive God and see what happens. I challenge you this next year. I don't know if you give 10%, if you do give 11 this next year. Some of you ought to give 15. A few daredevils ought to give 20. I've tried him, can't outgive him. He blesses. If you trust him with your finances, if you trust him with what you have, as you give to his ministry, as you give to his church, as you give to the things he's involved in, don't give to just anything, but give to those things that God is involved in, God will come back and give you more so that he can shovel out more through you. Now, there's more. Paul has given these instructions to Timothy so that the church at Ephesus would be witnesses to God and his provision and his love. The third thing to see is 
Godliness can be witnessed. It can be witnessed. Verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of, on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I love the buts of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever studied the buts, but they're, it's when God all senses but. <laughs> and then he does something else. He draws contrast in this this instance, Paul draws contrast. Our hope is not in financial gain or, or the work we do, but in allowing Jesus to take over our lives. The consequence of all that will be living a godly life that others will see. Paul calls on Timothy and on us to pursue righteousness. That is an active, intentional, willful desire to do what is right. In our world, how do you know what is right? I only have one answer for that. You need to be a student of this word. This is the only place where you can definitively find out what is right. Go back to what I said about wisdom. This is the only place you can find out how to live wisely, consistently. Right now in our world, we're seeing unrighteousness and craziness and death, and cheating, and lying, and all this other junk come flying at us, and the church right now is having a hard time discerning what is right in all that. Go back to God's Word. It's there. We're to live rightly according to His Word. You got to stay in it. You got to meditate on it. You got to memorize it. It has to become an active part of your life. If you're going to pursue righteousness, you have to know what He says and then do it. God has given His Word as our owner's manual. This is how we're to find out how to live rightly, to be righteous. And there are abundant promises that God will fulfill for those who do live righteously. If we live righteously, we become godly. We'll then exercise faith and love and patience and gentleness. These are all the fruits of the Spirit working their way out in us as we live righteously. Paul doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit here, but it's all through this passage. You and I cannot pursue righteousness. We cannot make wise decisions without being filled and submitted to the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to display Himself through us. This involves the good fight of faith. It's not hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's walking with God in the midst of a fallen world encased in fallen flesh. But God gives us his ability by the Holy Spirit to overcome the world. Paul adjures Timothy to keep this command as he is giving to him until Jesus comes again. Are we to do any less? God has called us to godliness, and he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we might do that. And then I, this passage has sort of a, a benediction at the end of it that I, is, I think, stunning, if you would. In verse 13, he says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, 
that you keep his, this commandment without spot, blemish, or excuse me, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appears, which he will manifest in his own time, who, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. We serve an awesome God. We have awesome things coming at us. He's not finished with this yet. Paul ends this section and basically the letter with this awesome benediction. Who is Jesus? He's the one who will appear again. He's the one who will, who will and is manifesting his own name at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This will happen. It already is happening. Hopefully it's happened in your life, but I believe at the end, every knee, even those who despise him, they'll go, he is Lord. It's going to happen. This is God's promise. In the midst of our crazy and insane world, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is the only potentate. You know what a potentate is? It's some with absolute wealth, absolute power. Jesus is the ultimate potentate. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no restriction to his power. He's all powerful. There's no one higher or more powerful. He is it. Listen, he is alive. He is seated on the throne, high and lifted up. He came as a babe, but he reigns as the Lion of Judah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is none like him. There is none who can stand before him. He is God in the flesh, yet was a baby in the manger. He identified with us so he could sanctify us and make us whole after sin's devastation. He's the Holy One, the rose of Sharon, the bright and morning star. He is awesome. He's immortal. He lives forever and will never die. And because he lives, you and I will live forever in his presence. This is not just our hope. It's a fact. It's a fact. It will happen. He's sinless and he has made us sinless before the Father. He dwells in unapproachable light. One day he will see... And, but one day, excuse me, we will see him as he is. One day we will be able to see and touch the nail prints in his hand and hear him audibly say, I love you and I did this for you. When we see him and approach the unapproachable, we will give him all glory and honor and acknowledge his everlasting power. Power greater than all our sin, power greater than death, power greater than anything the devil can throw at us or at him. We'll be the recipients of his power that turned us from sin to life everlasting. He is the great I am. He's the one and only Lord of lords and King of kings. There is no one more powerful, more mighty, more loving, more gentle, more gracious than Jesus. He's our hope. We'll witness him firsthand, and we are to be witnesses of, to others of what he has done firsthand in our lives as he's made us godly. 
by the working of the Holy Spirit in us this Christmas season. Put all your attention on Him who has given us life, who's not finished with us yet. Boy, am I glad of that. He's not done. He's not done with me. He's not done with you. He's not done with this church. He's not done with this world or he would have already come back. He's still working on me. Make me what I ought to be. Ever heard that song? I'm not going to sing the whole thing. (laughs) This Christmas season, put all your attention on him who's given us life and who's not finished with us yet. He's not finished with the church yet. And apparently not finished with this world yet. This potentate, the potentate has plans for you and for me and they're good. The potentate has gone before us and has made a place for us in heavenly glory. The potentate is preparing a place for us to dwell with him for all eternity where there will be no more sin, no more hurt, no more pain, no more stress, no more consternation, no more war, no more poverty, only joy and bliss and adventure for all eternity. This is just a thumbnail sketch of what we of the hope we have in him. One more thing. Godliness does not depend on wealth. Those last few verses, Paul comes back to this. Apparently there was some kind of problem in the church there with this. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Paul begins this discussion, or brings this discussion, excuse me, back to the issue of of the perception of godliness. Just because one has been blessed financially does not mean they're somehow more godly, more righteous than those who do not have much. Wealth should be a point of humility. Who makes all wealthy? Moses clearly states this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I don't know if you can zip that one up there real quick, but beware. Now, this should be a, a note for our age, if you would. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, least when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. Do we live in beautiful houses? I mean, how many of you have traveled in the third world? A few of us. Is there a contrast between the way we live and they live? Don't forget the Lord who gave you all this. Verse 13, And when your herds and your flocks, your businesses, and your silver and your bank accounts are all multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water, for you out of the flinty rock, he provided everything, and he still does. He provides it all. 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Verse 17. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Now look at the next verse. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Who gives us our wealth? Ultimately. I mean, we have to go to the banker, maybe borrow the money for the house. We got to go get a job. But who ultimately prospers us? It is he, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our finances should be a point of humility for us. God gives wealth, and you are just to be his stewards, his managers of what is his, that he has shared with us. Paul is intentionally warning this young pastor to not get his head turned by wealth, nor to allow those who have wealth to determine the direction of the body that God alone can determine. Godliness was basically, has basically nothing to do with whether one is wealthy or not. Only God determines that. If anything, having wealth, verse 18, look at that real quick. He says, let them do good that, have, that, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. If anything, having wealth should enable one to do more good, to give and to be the conduit for life to others with what God has blessed you with. Paul clearly states that wealth should be doing good works, being a giver, being a conduit, being a sharer. Verse 19, it is when one does that he stores up heavenly wealth, which has far more value. When we get to heaven, we'll be given crowns for the good we have done on earth. I believe Paul is alluding to that here. Our heavenly foundation may be well determined by the good we do on earth. The last two verses of the book, of this letter, it says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, providing, oh, excuse me, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace to you be with you. Amen. Finally, Paul ends this great little letter with an admonition. Guard the gospel. Guard what has been given to you. Be faithful to it and to the teachings of Scripture and the life that Christ gave. Now here's how you guard it. Here's how you guard it. It's the reverse of guarding something on earth. You don't have to get stand sentry over it. You guard it by learning good doctrine and then you give it away. You give it away. You give the word of God because it's the word of life. You give the gospel because that gives people life. You tell people about what Jesus has done in your life. You give your testimony as often as possible. That's how you guard the gospel. That's why the gospel has spread. Oh, there's the parts of doctrine. We want to have good doctrine. And there's the parts of understanding the scripture the way it is, but we need to give it away.
And it's my hope, it's my prayer that this church and the church in America will begin to give the gospel away in the marketplace, in the day-to-day living of our people. Guard the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our ultimate hope, our great blessing, our ultimate Christmas present. You're ours because we have placed our feeble faith in you and what you did for us on the cross. We thank you for opening our eyes to the gospel of life. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for coming and indwelling us by your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would overwhelm us by your love this Christmas. Overwhelm us by giving us glimpses of your great plans for us in in our world. Lord, fill us with your spirit afresh and anew. Fill us with the hope we have in you and in the gospel. May we be true to the gospel. May we guard it, but may we be channels to give it away. I pray that this time next year, none in this place would recognize this church because of the growth we will all experience as we give away the gospel of life. Lord, we're surrounded by death. Lord, may we be agents of your life to all around us. Lord, use us in ways we never imagined. Lord, I commit this church, these precious saints to your care and instruction and life. Bless us all, each and every one, for your glory, for your love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.